We're in Revelation chapter 21. If you'd like to go there, I will put the passages on the screen for you as well. But we're in Revelation chapter 1. If you'd like to look at your own Bible, and we will begin by reading with verse 9. It's a longer passage today, but let's, let's read through this together. Follow along with me. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth tobaz, the tenth chrysophrase, and the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of God to us as church. Father, as we look into this passage, as we approach the end of this amazing revelation that you gave to John, that he sent out to the seven churches, and that by your Holy Spirit has been preserved for your church today, we thank you for this journey we've been able to take together in studying this book. But Lord, we are in the part of the book now, the end, where it's all glory. It's all amazing to see how you are bringing the story that you have written, the story of time and space and the cosmos and history to a grand 
conclusion. Jesus, be with us now as we study this together. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're tackling a longer passage this morning, and, and so instead of what I will, would have often done uh, throughout this series of kind of working through it literally verse by verse, reading the verse to you again and then explaining it, uh, what I'm going to do is to try to explain what I believe to be most important for your understanding in this passage. And, and please, as I've said so many times, please consider doing your own study of the book of Revelation. I, that, to me, would be the ultimate as a Bible teacher, is if maybe over this last year since, when was it, March of 2020 when we started this study, if maybe you've been prompted or compelled uh, to get some books and to do some deeper study of Revelation yourself. And so please consider doing that. Uh, passages that maybe you felt like I didn't cover so well. Or, you know, Pastor Terry, you said you weren't going to skip any verses, and then you skipped a few verses. You know, those passages, right? Dig in yourself and, and kind of get into the Word of God. And that's true, of course, of the entire Bible, not just the book of Revelation. But we want to be uh, Christ followers, church, don't we, who know His Word. Amen? Isn't that our desire? to know the word of the living God and then to obey the word of the living God. So we're in verse 9 as we begin here. And again, I'm just going to uh, kind of talk you through this a little bit. Nope, that's where I want to be. Sorry, I was a little confused for a second. In verse 9, John is approached by an angel. And, and it's an angel that he's encountered before uh, in the past as this revelation has been unfolded to him. But he's approached by this angel who tells him to come and to see the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And, and we know this is pretty basic Christianity here, Christianity here. but I want, I want to make sure that, that none of this has fallen through the cracks and that everyone is aware of some of these basic things in our study of Revelation and of Scripture. But the Lamb is Jesus. That's obvious to us. It's all throughout, not just the book of Revelation, but throughout Scripture. And the bride is the church. And so that's what you see on the screen. But I want to make sure you have that clearly in your mind as we study this passage. The bride that is being shown to John here is the church. It's us. It's the collective group of Christ followers throughout history, throughout time, from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Amen? And, and all of these people who have followed after Christ, who have made that decision to put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, not relying on their own righteousness, just like the song we just sang says, not relying on my righteousness, but relying on the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to me on the cross, that on the cross two beautiful things happened. All of my sins were taken from me, and he paid the penalty for them, and his perfect righteousness was extended from him to me so that when God the righteous judge looks at me, he no longer sees my sin, but he sees the righteousness of his son. Amen? And so this is who is represented in the bride that we see here. And so this angel tells John that he's going to show him the bride. And I'm sure John got very excited at that point. In verse 10, we read that what the angel actually shows John is a city. 
He says, come, let me show you the bride. And then what John sees before him in verse 10 is a city. John sees the new city that we began to learn about two weeks ago, the last time we were in Revelation. He sees the new city that we learned about when we studied the beginning of this chapter. And if we understand it to be a literal city, and I want to be fair and generous about that because Christians like us, great Bible scholars that, we, that are going to be in heaven one day with us, have come down on all different sides of this. And some would say that this is very figurative, poetic language, and they would say that this is not a literal city. I personally believe that this is a literal city. I just want to tell you where I'm at with that. And thank you, Pastor Nelson, for that encouragement. It's where Pastor Nelson is too, and his opinion means a whole lot more than mine. So that, it's a literal city is where we are coming at from this as a, as a church, right? The bride is within that city. So when the angel says, come, let me show you the bride, he's talking about showing him the church that resides in that literal city. And I think we'll see how that pans out in the scriptures here. Starting in verse 11, John begins to describe the city. He's seeing this unfold before him, and so now he's just telling us what he sees. And the description that John offers to us is absolutely amazing. It's really an amazing description that John gives to us in this chapter. What is the very first thing, though? Look at your text. What is the first thing that John mentions? The first thing that John seems to notice about the new city is that it radiates with the glory of God. That's the first thing that he sees. It's the first thing he writes about. Now, why does it radiate with the glory of God? Earlier in the chapter, if you want to look back at the beginning of chapter 21 and look back to verse 3, we learn that God himself lives in the city. God is actually present there. We talked about this two weeks ago at length, but God has taken up residence with his people. The church lives in the city, and God has moved in. He sold his house in heaven, packed his bags, put it on the market. It sold pretty quick. I'm I'm being silly now. But anyway, God has moved into this city that has now descended to the recreated earth. Do you remember how the glory of God covered Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. Let me walk you through some scripture quickly. The glory of God on Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 24, we find this. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord, of Jehovah, dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And I want you just to take some mental notes, or if you have a pencil, take some actual notes, but how the glory of God is described in these passages we're looking at. Here in Exodus 24, it's described as a devouring fire. Now, what about the glory that filled the temple in the time of the kings. Let's fast forward a little bit in Israel's history here. And now we're in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, where we read, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. 
so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. The glory of the Lord is present, and they couldn't stand to minister there, the text tells us, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Well, what about that time in Ezekiel that we read about where Ezekiel sees and hears the Lord coming? And this is what he writes. He says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was was like the sound of waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Cheber Canal. And look at what Ezekiel does. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What is the one common denominator that we seem to be seeing in the Old Testament whenever the glory of the Lord shows up? Fear? trepidation, awe. This is what in theology uh, many uh, theologians have called the numinous. It's an aspect of God. It's His holiness. It, It draws you in by its beauty, and yet it's absolutely terrifying. My fear is that in church culture today, to some degree, we have lost an appreciation for the holiness of our God. Our God is holy, church. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is a terrifying thing for a sinful person to stand before a holy God. And you may say, well, Pastor Terry, you're preaching Old Testament right now. Oh, really? What about Acts chapter 5, that little story about the couple who sold the land? (laughs) Thank you, Maureen. And, And gave part of the money but said they gave all of the money. It was okay that they gave part. That wasn't the sin. The sin wasn't that they only gave part of the proceeds from the sale of the land. The sin was that they had communicated to the church that they were giving all of it. And then they held back part. And what happens? You know the story. This isn't just an Old Testament concept. Our God is holy. It is a terrifying thing, friend, for a sinful person to stand before a holy God. I mean, isn't that what we see so clearly in Isaiah chapter 6, this beautiful passage? And Isaiah, understanding this reality of the numinousness of God and how holy he is and understanding his own sinfulness, says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah is saying, I'm a sinner, and so are the rest, so is everybody else I know. We are a sinful people, and here I am in the throne room of the living God. If you're not familiar with this passage, he had been transported into the very presence of God. And when he realizes his own depravity, he believes that he's undone and dead. And he says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We need to see what's happening here in Revelation chapter 21, church, in that context. Because here's the beauty of 
this passage. In eternity, in the new city, when death and sin are dead, there will be absolutely no longer any cause for fear. When God moves in to the new city and he invites us to join him, and we live in that reality with our God, with the same holy living God that he has always been, there will be no cause for fear. The citizens of this city will not live in fear, but they will live in security because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We will be neighbors with God. We will walk in the light of his glory, and there will never ever be cause for fear ever again of anything. Fear will be eradicated from eternity. I think this is probably what's being conveyed because the next couple of verses strike me as being kind of funny. Sin is gone. All of the evil people are gone. All there is is the bride and the lamb, the triune God and his bride, and sin is gone from the equation. And so the question you could ask when you get to verses 12 and 13 why does the city need walls? Who, who, is, who are the walls, or what are the walls protecting us from at that point? And I think that's probably what's being conveyed here. If there's, if there's no more sin or death, if there's no more violence, if there's no more war, then why does the city even need walls? And in ancient times, castles had walls to protect the people inside from intruders. That's the purpose of that. But why in heaven do we live in a city with walls? Here's my best guess, and that's all it is, and, and this has been affirmed with, you know, by other Bible, by Bible scholars as well. But maybe we are told how great and how high these walls are in verses 12 through 13. Maybe we are told this to assure us now. Maybe the purpose of these verses is to give us assurance now how safe we will be in the city then. And maybe it's to strengthen, not only to strengthen our hearts now, but then also in eternity, the walls will serve as a reminder that we are indeed eternally secure. That because of Christ, because of everything he's accomplished, because creation has been made anew and sin and death are gone and fear is no longer needed, these walls will be a reminder of that security. In verse 12, we also see that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed on the gates. Verse 14, if you jump to verse 14, we see that the names of the apostles are inscribed in the foundations of the walls. And this, to me, reminds us of what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible informs itself, church. That's why it's so important to read through this book, to, to study all parts of Scripture, because you see the connectivity of it. And then you'll have a, a much better theology of what our faith and practice ought to be. Paul writes to the Ephesians here, and he says, So then you no longer are strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
So again, this could be imagery, but I believe what is, what is being communicated here is that our faith is built on this book, church, on the prophets and on the apostles, Old and New Testament. This is our perfect guide for faith and practice, amen? This is where we put our hope and what God has written to us in his word. Paul goes on to write on Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Doesn't this just beautifully connect and inform what we're studying in Revelation chapter 21? We're built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. Jesus is the cornerstone, as he writes here to the Ephesians. And each of us, if we have trusted in Christ for our salvation, we're a block in that building. We are a part of what God is doing in moving everything in history towards his expected end. And then the angel with John, if we come back to the text, back to Revelation 21, and look at verse 15 with me, the angel begins to do something very curious here. In verse 15, John tells us that he has, the angel, has in his possession a measuring rod. This is interesting. And and why does he have this measuring rod? This is one of the reasons, I think, because there's so much description here. It's one of the reasons I think this is really a literal city that we're going to live in. Because this angel has a measuring rod for the specific purpose of measuring the city and the gates and the walls. And John actually even tells us those measurements in verses 16 through 17. So let's, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but let's talk about this briefly. How big is the city? I mean, that's something we might want to know. How many of you would buy a house without ever looking at it first? Right? Well, here we are. God gives us a description of where we're going to live for eternity. How big is the city? Well, again, if you understand this to be a literal city, and that these numbers are to be taken literally. Again, Bible scholars would have differing opinions about that. We know that in ancient times, one stadia is approximately 607 feet long. So let's say 600 feet. That would mean, if you do the math on that, the city is approximately 1,400 miles in every direction. 1,400 miles. I want you to picture a cube here, and it's 1,400 miles that way, and it's 1,400 miles that way, and it's 1,400 miles up. Wow. <laughs> That's big. I, just, just to help you grasp the, the size of what we're talking about here, 1,400 miles is approximately the distance if you were to get in your car right now and drive to Denver, Colorado. That's about 1,400 miles, give or take a few. That's how big the city is that John is describing here. Let me, let me help you a little bit more with this because it's also 1,400 miles high is the description that we're given here. The tallest building on our planet right now built by men is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Do you know how tall the Burj Khalifa is? It's approximately one half mile high. That's the biggest building that men and women have been able to build so far in history. And this is going to be 1,400 miles, 2,800 times as high as as the Burj Khalifa. 
In verses 18 through 21, if you continue to look through the text, John provides more details concerning even the building materials that are used in the city. And and just take a moment and just look through that. I'm not going to read those to you again, but the precious stones and the different elements that are used used by God in the construction of the city. Can we even imagine... Can we even begin to imagine, church, how glorious this is going to be? How beautiful this is going to be? Bible scholar Robert Mounts writes about it in his commentary on this passage, and he says, The city is magnificent beyond description. As the eternal dwelling place of God and his people, it is described in language that continually attempts to break free from its own limitations in order to do justice to the reality it so imperfectly describes. What's Robert Mount saying? He's saying John is doing the absolute best he can with what he is seeing in front of him to write it down and describe it. Okay, I think that looks like amethyst. Yeah, that looks kind of like a pearl, right? And man, it's tall, right? (laughs) And so he's giving us the best description that he can. But the picture we need to see from this is it's going to be glorious. It is going to be amazing. And the rest of the chapter gives us a glimpse into what life will be like in the city. Uh, Take a a look at uh, verse 22 with me, because that's very interesting. There's no temple. Why is there no temple in the city? Well, John tells us there's no need for one. The presence of God, as we've talked about, the glory of God radiates throughout the city. It's the first thing John noticed. The presence of God fills the whole city. We will spend eternity, brothers and sisters, in the Holy of Holies. We will spend eternity in the most holy place. Understand that our present relationship right now, our present relationship with Jesus Christ, foreshadows so much of what is to come. Let me unpack that for you. I need to explain that better. Once once during his earthly ministry, Jesus engaged in a theological debate with a Samaritan woman. And, And this is what he said to her. He said, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain... Or in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father? So if you're not familiar with that story, just very quickly, what, what's going on is he's talking with a Samaritan woman at a well side, which was, he broke all kinds of lines in doing that. He, he broke religious, Jesus overstepped uh, what was considered appropriate, uh, appropriate religious in religious circles. He overstepped what was appropriate as far as male and female relations. Uh, he overstepped what was appropriate as far as race relations. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans weren't so happy about Jews either. And one of the theological issues that they disagreed about was where God should be worshipped. Jews believed God should be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem, and Samaritans, the Samaritans believed that God should be worshipped on the mountain in Samaria that they were talking about at that time. And so here they are, they're having this debate, and, and Christ, I think, is less concerned about the theological issues, and he's much more concerned about this woman's heart And that's how he moves the discussion as the discussion unfolds. But what we find out from this verse is a very interesting theological tidbit that after the redemption that he would provide, that Jesus would provide through his death, he would make a way for people to enter into the very presence of God. 
that Christ would make a way for you and I here now in the church age. We're not talking about in heaven one day right now. We're talking about now in our present life, that Jesus would make a way for us to enter into the most holy place and worship God, not just in Jerusalem, not just on that mountain in Samaria, but anywhere, because we would become the temple. You see, this is what the author of Hebrews writes so beautifully about in chapter 10 of Hebrews. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, look at what he writes here, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. What is the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying, it's the body of Christ itself that's the opening. We enter in through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ into the presence of God. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's the author of Hebrews saying? Now, because of Jesus, we can know the presence of God anytime and anywhere. You see, we take that for granted because we came into a faith that teaches that. But for a Jew, that was radical. For the immediate audience or for even a Jewish person today who has the gospel presented to them, I mean, I don't have to be in the temple in Jerusalem, which doesn't even exist right now in history. But for them, that's where you worshiped. You worshiped in the temple, in a physical building in the city of Jerusalem. And our faith teaches that you can enter into the very presence of God anytime. Why? Because you're the temple. It's what Paul writes to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. He says, do you not know? You are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Commercial break. That's why we need to be defenders of life, church. We need to defend life. We do not have a right I would say, this is a whole series of sermons in itself, unless life is being immediately threatened. In other words, I'm not, here's what I'm just being honest with you, I'm not a pacifist. If we're being attacked as a nation, we have a right, a duty, an obligation to defend ourselves as a nation, right? If someone is trying to kill someone in the moment, you do whatever you need to do to prevent that from happening, right? But other than that, we do not have a right to take human life, church. And so we need to be pro-life. We need to understand that every human being has the imago Dei. Every human being is created in the image of the living God. Every human being was so loved by Jesus Christ that he died for them. And so why on earth would we take that life needlessly? Amen? So let us continue to be defenders of life here at Fellowship. Paul goes on that same idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, what, agree what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them. This is prophetic into the future. This is when the kingdom comes in fullness. 
This passage that Paul's quoting, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. But notice what Paul does at the beginning of the verse. He says, we are that temple now. What's he saying? He's saying that one day the kingdom is going to come in fullness, but the kingdom has already come in part and that we today are the temple. God and his people together. We already know this reality in part Church, one day we will know it in full. And in the new city, God himself will be the temple. Well, I need to, I need to get moving here. Continuing on with Revelation chapter 21, look at verse 23. With the glory of God radiating, radiating throughout the city, there's also no need for other lights. There's no need for any other light in this city. If we look at uh, verse 23 together, I'll show it to you on the screen. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This will fulfill a prophecy in the Old Testament. Here it is in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19. Jehovah speaks through Isaiah and says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. This prophecy in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, will be fulfilled when we live in this new city with God. The image of light is often used in Scripture to signify the presence of God. Let me just show you a couple things quickly. First uh, Timothy 6.16, Paul writes and says that God dwells in unapproachable light. There's so many passages about this. I'm just giving a few, a few examples. James had written, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's how God is described, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And the image of light in the New Testament is applied to Jesus Christ. Uh, and so John 1.9 is a good example where John had called Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. Uh, John 8, 12, Jesus gives this testimony about himself. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so then we see, returning back to Revelation 21, we see the impact. What will it mean for us to live in that light? And again, we see this in part now. John had written in 1 John, I want you to walk in the light. And so we have that opportunity, brothers and sisters, that we can walk in the light of God today. But one day, living in reality, what will that mean? Here's the outcome in the city that we're talking about. Look at verse 24. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And this, too, is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah. You see how all of the Bible is connected here. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11. Jehovah says, Your gates shall be open continually, speaking of the new Jerusalem. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with the king's lead in procession. So Bible scholar Grant Osborne writes about everything we're talking about right now, and he says, In ancient times, the city gates were closed at night to protect the citizens and keep unwanted visitors outside. We've kind of already talked about this a little bit. 
But Grant Osborne writes, now God is in control, and all evil has been destroyed. There are no hostile armies, and many among the nations now have entered the celestial city as fellow believers. Who are these nations and kings? I'll close with this idea. Who are these nations and kings that are being talked about here? They are the redeemed of the Lord through the centuries and all over the world. How many of you know it's possible for a politician to be a Christian? That might be a shocker, right? It's possible for a king to be a Christian. And there have been examples throughout history of leaders, world leaders, who bow their knee to Jesus Christ. And we need to pray for more of those here in our country and around the world. And they will be represented right here in this group. Do you remember, I'll close with this passage. Well, almost for this passage. Don't get your hopes up. Do you remember what John saw? This is going way back, like seven, eight months ago for us. But this is the vision he saw early on, Revelation chapter 7. He said, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There will be people church, from every country, every nation, every tribe, every tongue from around our globe who will be present on that day. The final verse in our passage makes it so clear who will be there and sadly who will not be there in the city. John writes, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. This is descriptive language, but who John is talking about here are those who throughout the course of their lifetime refused to receive the gospel, who refused to turn from their sin and to follow after Christ. And so these words still describe them, those who are detestable, those who are false, those who have rejected Christ. But only, who will be there? But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. My question for you today, my question for those watching us live right now on Facebook, for those who will watch this in the days and weeks to come, is simply this. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ to save you? Have you made that decision to turn from your sin, to turn away from your sin, and to turn from Christ? The sin that you once loved, does God, is God now stirring in your heart that you're beginning to hate that sin? You're finding your sin detestable. If that's true of you right now, it's because the Holy Spirit's doing that in your life. The Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, is awakening you to new life in Jesus Christ. What should be your response right now? To simply believe, to simply put your trust, to put your hope in Jesus Christ to save you because only in Jesus Christ is salvation found. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Contrary to what so many others in the world will say, there are not many ways to God. There is one way. And his name is Jesus Christ. Amen, church? And so if that is you today and you need to make that decision, let me encourage you to put all of your trust in Christ for your salvation so that you will be present one day with us 
in this city. You will live in this safety. You will live in this security where there will never be any more cause for fear. There will be no more death, no more sin, no more pain. Cancer will be eradicated. COVID will be nothing but a memory. All the violence, all of the frustration, all of the division that we see in our country right now will be long gone, church. It'll be us and God in complete perfection. Amen? What a day it's going to be. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come on up. And let's pray. Father, Forgive us when we allow our hearts to be bound to the silliest of things in this life. Forgive us, Jesus, when we get so caught up in all of the junk and the stuff of this world. And because of that, we neglect to be focused on you and on your mission and where you are leading us for eternity. Father, what incredible joy waits for us to fully know, to fully walk in, to fully live in your glory. Our God, to be in your presence, to be in your presence for eternity without fear, but in the security of your perfect love. And then, Lord, to know that what One day, we will know in fullness that we can now know in part. We can now enjoy kingdom life, at least in part. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that by your sacrifice, you have provided a way for us to enter the most holy place and to meet with the living God. We are now the temple of the living God. Lord, may we lean into you. May we enjoy the abundant life that you have given us. And the abundant life that will be ours in fullness for eternity. We love you, Jesus. Help us to